What's up, Crossroads? Thank you, Nate and Jana. I'm Brandon. I got to say, I'm, uh, I'm feeling good today. The last couple times I've been up here, I think I'd like tweaked my back and I had like tendonitis. And today I'm feeling good. Probably going to fall off the stage or something. I don't know now. Uh, I'm feeling good maybe because today is an amazing passage too. We're looking at one of the greatest stories of redemption and revolt and deliverance and rescue ever told. And I'm not talking about some big Hollywood movie or a play or a book like Les Mis. I'm talking about a, an event that was so amazing that for centuries people have still gathered around the family table to talk and to remember this at least once a year to just celebrate this event, which is really fitting because we're at a spot in Meals with Jesus where we're kind of on the eve of the culmination where we're going to be gathering as one family next week. So just a little reminder, I know we said it earlier, next week, don't come in here. Next week, we're going to be out there on the streets, gathered as a family, eating, celebrating, uh, bring with yourself or bring some food to cook, bring your A game too. There's going to be some games if you want to take part in those. In fact, for years, I've heard Rod talk about how Will Weatherhead is the best athlete on staff, and he's good. I don't want to put a target on his back or anything, but maybe you want to come challenge him for the best athlete at crossroads status. I put a target on his back, didn't I? I definitely did right there. Uh, that's next week, though. This week, we're looking at the story of how God passed by his people. That's your hint, by the way, for our text. We're looking at how God delivered and rescued his people up out of bondage. So today, if you have your Bible, your phone, your tablet, whatever it is you brought to church, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. While you guys are turning there, let me just warn you guys, today's a little bit of a content-heavy sermon. So I hope you had your coffee. Hope you guys are ready to go. Part of the reason for that is most of us did not grow up celebrating the Passover in our homes, and so there's a lot of things that we need to kind of unpack here in this. So how are we going to tackle all of this content? Let me give you a little roadmap. We're going to look at the original Passover. What was it like for Israel coming up out of Egypt? And then we're going to look fast forward to around the time of Jesus and the, the time of, of rabbis, and we're going to look at what the Passover became as it became the Seder that was celebrated then. And then we're going to finally look at the ultimate Passover. So the original, the remix, if you will, the Seder, and then the ultimate. So the original, the remix, and the ultimate. So before we read, let me give you guys just a little bit of context. We've been in the Gospels. We have not been in Exodus. But at this point in the story, Israel is enslaved. They're under the yoke of Egypt. If you guys remember, um, they had come to Egypt. There was this guy named Joseph. We often say he had a multicolored coat. It could have been, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it was for sure this ornate, fashionable, desirable robe. He gets sold into slavery in Egypt, and he rises all the way up to just under Pharaoh, and he brings his family, all of Israel, to Egypt, and they're enjoying living under that blessing but pretty soon, the book of Genesis ends and Exodus begins by telling us that Joseph passed away. And the Israelites were left in a land with pharaohs who no longer remembered Joseph and who no longer remembered Israel. And so Israel during this time, there's a verse that just says at the beginning of Exodus, were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied gratefully. They increased in numbers. They became so numerous that the land was filled with them. 
not entirely sure what to do with that verse. Hebrew often doubles things, but here they're tripling and quadrupling just to say Israel is very fruitful. And I think the reason for that is Genesis 15, the promise to Abraham that said, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. And it's coming true. And Egypt feels very threatened by this. And so they begin to to put slave masters over the Israelites. They begin to oppress them with hard labor. And the more that they put their boot kind of on Israel, the more that Israel just flourishes and, and grows larger and larger. And so the Egyptians begin to dread the Israelites. They begin to dehumanize them, to punish them with hard labor. But the more that they beat them down, the more that they just grow. And so finally, they begin to take every newborn baby boy in Israel and they begin to just throw them into the Nile. These perfect, innocent little babies. And Israel is just at a loss. They don't know what to do with this. And so they begin to cry out and groan to God under the weight of this oppression. And this is where we pick up our story today. God says, I'm going to put an end to this, and he sends this rescuer for them, Moses. And as he goes, uh, they begin to, to send plague after plague upon Israel, or on Egypt, and Egypt just gets more and more angry, and they send nine plagues, and finally God says, I'm sending the ultimate one. It's going to be done after this, the tenth plague. This is where we pick up our passage today. So if you're willing and able, stand for the reading of God's word, Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you your first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people that are there. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs the bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. If you've ever been to a Passover Seder, that last part might be a little confusing. They are wonderful and amazing, but a quick meal. They are not. Maybe that's just because the last time I went to one, uh, I showed up very hungry with a very pregnant wife, and we were seated very close to the dessert table. (laughs) All right, let's move on. I'm going to get in trouble if I say more. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn, both the people and the animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. I am well aware that for some of us in this room, this passage bothers us, maybe even more than just a little. 
God's going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. We don't read this as God's deliverance. We read this as his cruelty to the Egyptians. And I think I've been wrestling with that this week. And I think partly that's because most of us in this room have never really experienced total oppression. We're more used to being on the side of the Egyptians, the ones who are on top, the ones who no one is calling the shots for us, the one who have freedom. And so it's only natural that we read this with Egypt in mind. I think it's partly because as Americans we're inclined to believe people are good and they deserve good things. But in order to hold that view, you gotta do some serious ethical gymnastics with the heinous acts that the Egyptians are committing all leading up to this. But I think mostly it's because when we read this, we don't understand the difference between punishment and judgment. I heard Rod talk about this in a sermon once, and it just kind of stuck with me, that specific difference right there. We read this as an angry, vengeful, bloodthirsty God who's, um, who's just coming after the Egyptians, and we think that's not fair, and that's almost ironic because when the Bible talks about judgment, it's always in the context of justice. The two are just welded together. You can't separate them. This is God bringing justice to the world. God's judgment isn't punitive, it's restorative. It's restoring things back to the way that they're supposed to be. It's God making everything right. As someone who does a fair bit of counseling, I get to sit with people and I'm privileged to hear sometimes some of the most painful things that they've gone through. And there's always this this wrestling that needs to take place with, God, where's your justice? Why am I the one dealing with all of this and that person maybe who wronged me just seems to be getting off scot-free. That's why the psalmist, I think, cried out, how long, O Lord? When are you going to make this right? You hear the same thing if you hang out in any courtroom for any amount of time. God's judgment is ultimately good news for the world. It's God making everything right, showing how the created order is supposed to operate, showing that God isn't willing to just turn a blind eye to the oppression and the sins of this world. These plagues are less about punishment than they are about God just revealing the nature of the kingdom. God's justice on full display. God's kingdom where oppression is not gonna be tolerated, where discipline is a form of loving correction. God's kingdom is a world where he alone is on the throne. He he sends these plagues and he's showcasing that the so-called gods of Egypt are no gods at all. And then God's kingdom is not just justice. He holds in one hand justice, but in the other hand, compassion and love and grace. In fact, that Hebrew word for Passover that we're talking about today is Pesach. It's not used a lot in scripture, but there's one place in Isaiah that gives us an image for what God is doing for the Israelites here. Isaiah 31.5 says, like a bird hovering overhead, The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and he will rescue it. He's like a mother bird just circling the nest, protecting the young from any kind of enemy that's gonna come after them. He's gonna deliver them from their enemies. He's gonna pass over them in rescue. Part of God's justice is not only his judgment on the aggressors, but also his rescue and his protection of those who've been oppressed. And how does he bring about that protection? Look at verse three with me. 
Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with their nearest neighbor. This is a communal thing. It's not an individual activity. It's all about the family, but more than that, it's all about the people of God together. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You can take them from the sheep or the goats, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at midnight. So what's God's answer? How's he going to provide this protection? I've got a little video clip here of the answer. Oh, that's right. That beautiful, cute lamb in somebody's home. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now you're just messing with us, playing on our emotions right now. This cute, little innocent lamb bouncing up and down, coming when it's called. I think I am, but I think it's because I think God is doing that too. He chooses a soft, playful, cute, innocent, guileless animal And then he plays on the emotions. He doesn't just say, go to the store and buy some lamb meat. He doesn't even say, go buy a lamb and sacrifice it. No, he says, go buy a lamb, take it into your home for a couple of days. No doubt the kids are playing with it, naming it. And I think that's the point. Play with it, associate with it, because this lamb is going to represent you. The blood of the lamb is ultimately what allows Israel to escape this plague. For God to pay sock, to pass over them. And I know it isn't popular today. I know it's perceived as barbaric. But I'm telling you, for an Israelite, that's the most beautiful sight in the world. Because it's only by the blood of the Lamb that Israel's going to be saved. That Lamb's life laid down is the only thing that's going to save the family. Israel deserved to experience every one of the plagues. They have guilt too. But the thing that they have other than Israel is they're dependent on God. They have the humility to even look to a lamb. Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart over and over again. He refuses. He fights against the plans of God. In Israel, though, rather than be like Egypt, rather than try to fix themselves, rather than try to fight against God's plan, rather than acting like, you know what, we're pretty innocent by playing the comparison game. At least we're not as bad as Egypt. At least we haven't done all those evils. No, they just humbly take that lamb and they paint the blood on their doorposts and they go to sleep trusting in complete faith in God. Makes me wonder a little bit. question I've been asking as I've been sitting down with this sermon is just like, is my life marked by that same kind of faith? That same humility? How often am I trying to do it on my own, trying to make myself look a certain way, playing the comparison game? Well, I think I'm okay because I'm not as bad as this person or that person or these people. How often am I fighting and kicking against the plans of God rather than humbly accepting that it's only through faith in the blood of the Lamb that ultimately causes God to pay sock and pass by? I'm only safe because of the blood of of the ultimate lamb. It's not anything that I can do on my own right. I think many of us know how the story ends too. It's a familiar one. God sees the blood on the doorpost, right? He passes by. Not a single Israelite is harmed. But when they wake up, Egypt is just devastated and they just send Israel out. In fact, take some of our stuff. Just go, get out of here. 
What I want to know is why. Why did this become the central holiday for Israel when there's so many great ones? Why did God command them in verse 2, this month is to be your first month, the start of your year? Why celebrate this first? Why reorient the entire Jewish calendar around this event? I think it's because it's, for Israel, this is a reminder. God sees you. God sees your distress. He hears our cries. His word says even that he saves our tears in a bottle. Psalm 56 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Do you see why this would be such a big deal to a nation? A nation that in the grand scheme of things is a pretty irrelevant nation, insignificant nation that felt abandoned, forgotten in slavery, unseen and unheard. And I know some of us here today feel the same thing. We're in pain and we're crying out, God, how long? Do you even see me? Do you know what I'm going through? Do you even care? I think some of us even come to a place like this and we look around and we say, does no one even notice that I'm hurting? Does no one even care that today I'm not okay? I just want to say we do care. We want to know. We want to walk with you on those things. But even more importantly than that, you have a God who sees you, who knows any and all pain in your life. And I can't guarantee today that he's going to bring you up out of your own personal Egypt. Israel was in slavery for 430 years. But I can promise you this. He sees you. And he's not without compassion and concern. I'd love to camp here longer. I would really love to camp here longer. We have to keep moving. So look at verse 14 with me. I told you we're going to look at the original Passover, the Passover remixed. And then the ultimate Passover. So let's step a little bit into the Passover remix, the Seder. Verse 14, this day is to be for you, or this is the day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Passover was so important to God. He said, I want you to experience this every year. I don't want you to forget what I've done. I want you to tell your kids. I want you to tell your grandkids. I want you to tell their kids after that. And if you fast forward all the way to the time of Jesus, the rabbinical period, especially after the destruction of the temple, what you see is that Passover has grown to be one of the central holidays for the Jewish people. The Seder is a big deal. It's one of three pilgrim festivals. What that means is that people from all over Israel would be traveling to Jerusalem for this holiday. They'd be staying with family. They'd be relying on the hospitality of others. The town would be buzzing with people. The town would quite literally be buzzing with flies as all the lambs and livestock would be brought into town. Josephus is a famous Roman historian, and he records that for one Passover year in Jerusalem, 255,600 lambs were brought to town. I want you guys just to imagine the smell walking into town. Sometimes I get a little queasy at the petting farm, you know? Can't imagine this. I don't really, guys. I'm all right. But these streets would be filled with cute, cuddly, stinky lambs all over the place. And you'd be packed shoulder to shoulder with all these people trying to go. And there would be this buzz and this excitement going on. 
But I want you to imagine all the sights, sounds, smells too as those 250,000 lambs are brought to the temple and they were all slaughtered within 24 hours. It was, I don't want to be gross, but it was a bloody mess. In fact, they had these huge vats of water that they would use to wash down the temple mount and that blood and that water would run all the way down into the Kidron Valley. Josephus says it ran all, as far as Bethlehem, which was miles away. This to us is horrifying. This to me is horrifying. I, uh, a few years back, I had this, I thought it was this brilliant idea. I was scared to death to do it. But I thought, you know, man, there's so much in Scripture about the Lamb. And I really want to understand this visual image that God gives for Christ. And so I talked to someone who goes to Crossroads who had some lambs. And I was like, next time you're slaughtering lambs, I think it's going to wreck me, but I want to go. And so this guy from Crossroads called me up unexpectedly. I'm just sitting there. I'm at work. And he's like, hey, it's happening right now. Get over here. <laughs> Guys, I wussed out. <laughs> I just, I was busy and I couldn't take the thought. I, I'm just, the thought of that cute little lamb and what was going to happen to it. And I don't know if that makes me a wuss. I don't know if that just makes me a modern American. But to these people, I don't think that this was a horrifying sight. I don't think this churned their stomachs at all. I think this was the sounds and the sights of deliverance and rescue to them. Remember, this is a people who's experienced bondage, who know slavery, not just to Egypt, which in Hebrew literally means house of bondage, Mitzrayim, but also with Assyria and Babylon and now Rome. And they're celebrating God's rescue and they're awaiting his ultimate rescue. And I think every time they see that river of blood, they look down at it and they know that's there so that mine doesn't have to be. That's there so that God can pass by and save us and deliver us. In fact, everything associated with the Passover is about that deliverance and freedom. Even the position when you're at the Passover Seder that you eat at communicates that. It's customary to drink each glass of wine while you lean to the left and you recline on a pillow. Why? Because that's what free people did in Roman days. That's how they ate. And so that's how we're going to eat on this night. Reclining at the table, drinking wine, remembering slavery by eating the slave bread. It makes me think, what if we had regular reminders in our lives of our freedom? I think the only people who take freedom for granted are free people. And I think some of us need to remember that as Christians, we are a liberated people. Jewish people had regular reminders, but I don't think most of us do. I want to talk about three elements of the Seder. We don't have time to cover the whole meal today, so we're going to just kind of boil this down to three elements. One, the first one, you have to read the Exodus account. Every Seder includes this, but it's, it's the point of the Passover, to remember what God has done. But this isn't just a history lesson. Every Israelite is to imagine for generations to come as best they can to put their feet in the original Israelite sandals and imagine what it was like marching up out of Egypt. In fact, some people still today put packs on at the Seder and they walk around the table with a staff and these packs to try to recall what it must have been like walking through the wilderness. And as they recount the story, they refuse to villainize Egypt even through all the plagues. In fact, when each of the plagues are recited, 
A lot of Jews will dip a finger in the wine and let a drop fall to signify and symbolize their grief at the loss of human life, even the life of their bitter enemies. In other words, don't you dare forget what God's done for us. Don't you dare forget and take your freedom for granted. Don't you forget what it cost, that freedom wasn't free. How often, though, do I forget that in my life? The bondage that God has rescued me up out of. The extent to which he went to liberate me. There's a couple here at Crossroads. I won't embarrass them by saying their name, but they, they're an inspiration to me. I have a marriage that hit a really hard spot, and it probably shouldn't have made it. And by the grace of God, they made it through, and now years and years later, they continue. Every year, they carve out an entire month. And for that month, they celebrate and they remember and they cheers to what God did to save and redeem and restore their marriage. They refuse to forget. I love that. Do we make space and time to remember and celebrate the victories of God in our lives? Or do we just move on to the next thing? I think often as Americans, we have that next up mentality what have you done for me lately kind of attitude. God calls us repeatedly throughout scripture, remember, teach it to your children, teach it to your children's children. Celebrate this work that I've done in your communities and in your lives. So the Israelites remember by recalling the Exodus story. The other thing that they do, look at verse 15. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. Another central element of the Seder is the unleavened bread, the matzah bread, the slave bread, the bread of affliction, it's called. Had to leave Egypt before the bread even had time to rise. But it's more than that, too. It's also the bread of faith. Without waiting for the dough to rise, the Israelites fled Egypt, putting complete faith in God and his deliverance and provision. They didn't have any idea where they were going, how they were going to get there, how long it was going to be, how they would get food or water, and yet they left. I hope that gives some of us courage. You don't always have to know every single step in your life before you step out in faith and follow and trust in the promises of God. Here, unleavened simply means that it doesn't have yeast or anything else that causes fermentation when it cooks. In fact, Jews aren't even allowed to have leaven in the house during the Passover. Look at verse 15 again. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. They take this very seriously. The mere possession of yeast during Passover is forbidden. Pots that you've cooked meals with yeast in them have to be put on the shelf for this time because some of that that yeast might have infiltrated the pores of the pots and then it might flavor the matzah bread and you can't have that. And so you have to get rid of it. In fact, the whole house needs to be clean. The whole family goes on a hunt for hamets, for leaven. And so they begin to by just top to bottom cleaning the whole house. And then the night before Passover, they hide these couple little pieces of bread around the house and the whole family gets a, a candle, a feather, and a spoon and they, they use the candle to search. It symbolizes the thoroughness of the search that they're doing and they take this feather and this wooden spoon and any bit of leaven, they sweep up and they burn it the next morning. And then at the end, the family gathers around and they say this prayer in Aramaic that basically just says, God, we've searched 
to the best of our abilities. If we've missed anything, may you just render it to be like dust. I remember talking with a friend who's um, gluten-free, and she was telling me about how when she swept her whole house clean, she threw every bit of gluten away, and then she would sit there and she would scrub those dishes with everything that she had, and she said the whole time she was just imagining that she was killing all of those dirty little glutens. (laughs) I don't know what a gluten looks like or what she was envisioning in her mind, but this was a big cost for her. She had to throw away gobs of food, and I can't imagine doing this year after year. In fact, the rabbis saw the financial toll of this, and so they just set this stuff in place where you could sell all of your leaven products, get it out, and then you could buy it back afterwards. But why go to all this work? Why is leaven so evil? Leaven to a Jew represents every evil inclination the yeast of the dough, the evil impulses that ferment in your heart. It's what prevents humans from carrying out the will of God. Leaven also represents haughtiness and conceit. Just as a little leaven puffs up the dough, right? So a little arrogance puffs up the person. Makes you think that it's about you and not God who's in control of our destiny. I think this is why God pairs it with the Passover where the Israelites did nothing. They just painted a little blood and then they went to sleep and God did all the work. All this has me wondering though, what if we took the leaven in our lives this seriously? What if we invited others into the process with us? Let them examine and hunt around in our lives, root out any besetting pride or evil inclination. I think most of us, if you're like me at least, spend more time trying to hide the leaven in our lives rather than hunt for it. This last week, I had to have a conversation with somebody. It wasn't a huge deal, but I was dreading it, and I was like, oh, man, and I had that voice inside my head that was saying, like, it's not a real big deal. It really didn't hurt them, but I knew there was sin. There was leaven there, and I had to go to my brother, and I had to just confess that to him. I had to hold that spotlight up and just say, look around, is there any more, anything else that you see? And I'll tell you, I dreaded that conversation, but it was freeing. I left that thing 20 pounds lighter. Sin is bondage. It is. And when we try to minimize it, when we try to hide it rather than hunt it out and deal with it and bring it before the grace of God and before others, it enslaves us. What, do we, what would it be like today if we took our sin more seriously? Are there things that we need to bring to light this week that have been hidden for just too long? Are there things that we need to shine the spotlight on? Are there? Last element of the Seder we'll talk about is the, three, the four cups of wine. Some of you guys will like this one. It's a quote from an ancient... Jewish source that just says this, on the night of the Passover, even the poorest person in Israel must not eat unless he reclines. Remember, this is how free people ate. More than that, it's even how royalty ate in the Roman period. Even the poorest person is going to eat like a king today. And they must give him no fewer than four cups of wine, even if the funds come from the charity plate, from the offering plate. You have to drink four 
cups of wine here. I was doing a little research this week, and one commentator said, have to is the operative word here. See, we Jewish people are so smart, we created a holiday where you have to drink. These were decent-sized glasses of wine, too. They were one quarter log of wine each. Can you believe it? No one knows what a quarter log is. I didn't either. I had to look it up. It's about three ounces. I'll say this, too, for my parents who listen on the podcast diligently. Um, Let me also clarify, grape juice can be substituted for wine at your choice. The goal of the Seder is to remain alert, not sleepy, not inebriated. Remember, these weren't short meals. You weren't pounding four glasses of wine over a quick, like, Taco Bell dinner. You were sitting, stretching this out, enjoying company, enjoying remembering. But it's essential that you have four cups. Why? This comes from Exodus 6. Look with me at Exodus 6, verse 6. The four cups all reflect different expressions of God's deliverance for Israel. It says this, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you for me to be a people. Those four things, I'll bring you out, deliver you, redeem you, take you. The first cup, the cup of blessing. God promises to bring Israel out, out of slavery, out of their bondage, out from under the thumb of Pharaoh. That second cup, the cup of deliverance, God's promise to deliver his people. Anyone who's been a slave knows that you need more than just physical freedom. It gets into your bones. It gets into your very nature. Think of Red and Shawshank Redemption when he gets free from prison and he still can't go to the bathroom without someone telling him that it's okay. He's free physically, but he still has that mindset of a prisoner. God's deliverance is setting us free from a slave identity too, from a slave nature. That third cup, the cup of redemption, God promises, I'm going to redeem you. I'm willing to pay all your debts, ensure that you're walking out of Egypt free and clear. In fact, I'm going to have them pay you retribution. The fourth cup, the cup of marriage. God promises, I'm going to take you to be my people. I'm not just going to bring you out. I'm not just going to deliver you. I'm not just going to redeem you. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to take you to be my people. Do you see why this became such a central holiday for Israel? Why the Passover is such a celebration even to this day? And how does God do this? The Passover is just a foreshadowing of the greater Passover, the ultimate Passover. So let's look at that final piece today, the ultimate Passover. Let me just ask you, what time of year did Jesus die? It's a leading question, given that we're talking about the Passover, but personally, I, I was talking with some people this week, and we were talking about how we would have assumed that it was on Yom Kippur that he would have died, the Day of Atonement. That makes total sense, but Jesus doesn't. Matthew 26 tells us, Jesus says this, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. His last week is Passover. In fact, I see the Seder all over Jesus last week. The Last Supper, he has the first and the second cup before dinner, Luke tells us. The third cup after dinner, 1 Corinthians says it this way. In the same way, after, he, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. My blood. I'm the new Passover. Poured out for sins and deliverance. 
The fourth cup, the cup of marriage, Jesus says he's not going to drink it until the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation. And the fifth cup, I know we didn't talk about a fifth cup, but in rabbinic times they had already added another one. And it comes from all over the place in Scripture. Psalm 75 says it this way, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It's well mixed, and he pours it out like this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Revelation 14 in the New Testament says, He also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. The fifth cup is the cup of God's wrath. If you fast forward from the Last Supper a few hours, you find Jesus in a garden on his knees, crying out, praying, sweat, turning like drops of blood hitting the ground. And he says, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any way, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And Jesus drinks that fifth cup, the cup of God's wrath for us. He takes God's wrath so that we don't have to. Jesus is the Passover lamb, sacrificed so that we can be delivered. 1 Corinthians 5 says it this way, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I love how that says it. Because Jesus was the lamb sacrificed. We've been made unleavened. He's cleansed us of all our impure desires and sinfulness because Christ is our Passover lamb. Because he is, God can pay sock. He can pass over us. We don't have to drink the cup of his wrath because Jesus drank it for us. We get the blessings and the benefits of the entire Passover. Jewish or not, it's for each one of us because God, because Jesus got the judgments and the wrath. Every promise that God gives in the Exodus is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That verse in in Exodus, I'll bring you out from under your burdens. I'll deliver you from bondage. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you, and I'm going to marry you. I don't know about you, but that verse is my life in a nutshell. It's what God has done for me. He brought me out. He delivered me. He redeemed me. He took me to himself. He defeated all the other forces in my life and he liberated me. Because of Christ, now I get to recline like a free man at the table. If that's you too, I just want to encourage you today, not just individually, but maybe even to invite some others in it with you. What's it look like today to spend some time celebrating with friends or family celebrating what God has done, sitting around the table, taking turns, telling the story of what God has liberated you from, how he's brought you out, how he's passed by and set you free, your own personal Passover story, celebrating what freedom means to you, taking communion and remembering the ultimate bread and the ultimate blood that set you free. Perhaps that starts just right now. As we're about to sing some songs and worship God, just taking time to express with full gratitude and remember what he's done in your life, how much the Passover lamb has done to set you free. Maybe even asking if there's any leaven that you need to get out today. And if you don't know that freedom, that liberation, I just want to tell you, you can. It's real. 
He really is the Passover lamb, and it really is the good news. Love to talk to you about it. Love to pray with you. Let's all pray. God, I just want to start by just saying thank you. Thank you that you hear us, Lord, that you see us and that you're concerned and you know us. Thank you, Lord, that you care enough to deliver us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to bring us up, and even to marry us. May you teach us evermore what that means. God, will you remind us of our freedom in Christ daily? Help us to not take it for granted, the freedom that you bring. We love you and we need you, Lord. Amen.